As the floor is swept every day, so is the soul cleansed every day by confession. Hugh Connolly wrote those words in the Irish Penitentials. Confession releases the soul's trauma to God. Sin traumatizes the soul, as do many other life experiences. Sorrow over the death of a child, the sting of failure, rejection by a parent, betrayal of trust, false accusation or vicious criticism, loss of ability through sickness, and the shock of facing a personal tragedy can all traumatize the soul. God has created in man marvelous coping mechanisms that shelter us from shock beyond our capacity to bear. We seal off the pain in our inner compartments, walling off the hurt so we can survive the trauma. We insulate ourselves from the memory or project our feelings onto others to control our pain. Confession is God's gift of release. Hiding hinders intimacy with God and with others. Walls go up. We hide our hurt inside our fortress as we look with suspicion at all around us. Confession opens the soul to love. It is God's gift of release. It's interesting that the ninth chapters of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel all contain confessions of personal sin and faith in God's grace. The biblical concept of confession involves not just confession of our sin, but confession of God's grace as well. Spiritual confession means mental redirection. Confession redirects our minds. We think differently about God. We think differently about ourselves because of confession. We look at ourselves differently when we confess our sins, and we look at God differently when we confess His grace. So there are three lessons about confession that we can learn from the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 9. Confession is, first of all, a look inward, a look inward, 9, 1 through 4. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. The Israelites had just concluded the eight-day festival of booths. Two days later, they engaged in a national worship of confession. 
The service lasted six hours. The first three hours were devoted to exposition of the scriptures once again, and the last three hours were devoted to corporate confession. We usually expect to see fasting followed by feasting, but instead here we see feasting followed by fasting. The power of confession as an act of our worship is astounding. A consciousness of sin and grace become infectious. It humbles the body of believers and moves us to profound worship of God and deeper fellowship with one another. Many years ago, an older woman at our church asked to meet with me. She poured out her heart that day. She confessed that she had harbored bitterness and resentment toward me because one day, Many months earlier, I had ignored her greeting at church. Apparently, she had spoken to me, but I had walked right past her without saying a word, and she felt that I was angry with her for some reason. Other slights were then noticed, and suspicions cataloged, and before long she had developed a deep resentment toward me that she knew was wrong, and she felt guilty every time she worshipped in church. Now, I was totally oblivious to all of this and never even remembered the incident. But I quickly told her how sorry I was for the offense and that I certainly was not angry toward her at all. We were able to establish a warm relationship, and I was very careful in the future to greet her at church so as not to offend her again. A local church can become an incubator for resentment. Opportunities abound for misunderstandings to develop. Personalities clash. Words wound. Our idiosyncrasies and our personality quirks cause hurt feelings. We fail one another, causing hard feelings. We sin, and the sin ripples out into other lives that are affected by the sin. Confession to others is God's prescription for whatever we do that damages our relationships with others. Unilateral forgiveness is God's prescription for whatever others do to damage their relationship with us. We just let it go. The first and best antidote is to forgive unilaterally, to let it go, so that resentment does not build in us toward other people. However, often sin infiltrates our fellowship and must be confessed to others to purify both our fellowship and us. Confession opens the doors of our hearts toward each other in the fellowship of a local church. Confession allows us to prosper spiritually and relationally once again. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. My friends, when we begin to look at inward at ourselves, it changes how we look outward at other people. This is the power of corporate confession. But how should we confess our sins in corporate worship? I think we see four guidelines in these verses for confession of sin. We must confess our sin 
with an attitude of humility in verse 1. They gathered in sackcloth and ashes. The Hebrew term for confess comes from a root that means to throw. Scholars speculate that it may have been used because of the actions associated with confession. Archaeologists have found that in some cities in Palestine, the streets were covered with a gray ash. The people would sit in the street and throw ash into the air and onto their heads as a sign of how they felt about their sinfulness. The ancient Hebrews were certainly a good deal more demonstrative than we are, but we can learn from them. A sense of humility is vital to the practice of confession. So we must confess our sin with humility, but we must also confess our sin with an attitude of separation in verse 2. They separated themselves from all foreigners, or we would say outsiders. Leviticus 20.26 says, You are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. In Exodus 19.6, God told the nation of Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The word holy means to be set apart, to be separated for God alone. The Apostle Peter wrote in the New Testament, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Biblical confession requires that we separate from the world for worship. We are different. And we really cannot worship God while trying to be as much like the world as we can be. It will never work. Light and darkness don't mix. Light eliminates darkness and confession illuminates the soul. We must confess our sins with an attitude of identification in verse 2. The little boy had been sent to his room because he had misbehaved. A short time later, he came out and said to his mother, I've been thinking about what I did, and I said a prayer. Well, that's fine, she said. If you ask God to help you be good, he will help you. Oh, I didn't ask him to help me be good, replied the boy. I asked him to help you put up with me. We are so quick to excuse our sins by blaming others, our parents, or someone else. People often blame their parents rather than share in any family responsibility for sin. I notice in verse 2 that the Israelites confessed their sin and the sins of their parents. They identified with the family and the community where they lived. God said in Exodus 20 verses 5 and 6, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The Israelites understood that there is a family identity to many sins, and so there is a family responsibility to confess those sins. Now, God is not judging them for sins they had no part in at all. 
But God understands, and we should too, that parents leave a continuing legacy of sin which is passed on from generation to generation. The children of those who hate God often learn to hate God also. Confession breaks that pattern of sin. We have lost this sense of corporate identification to sin because we have such an individualized Christianity. In fact, our parents sinned, and we often continue that same pattern of sinfulness many times. And our children learn those same patterns from us. The patterns of sin pass from generation to generation. For example, the person who excuses his bad temper because he inherited it from his father. He needs a radical redirection of his thinking. Yes, we may carry on the sinful patterns that we learned from our childhood, but we don't have to continue that legacy. Spiritual revival occurs when we confess our sins and the sins of our parents or our church or even our nation. We identify with their sin. We determine to stop passing on the sinful ways we learn from our family and our culture. We are responsible for how we carry on the legacy of our parents, our church, or our country. Confession breaks the cycle of generational sins. Finally, we must learn how to look inward with an attitude of surrender, verse 3. With an attitude of surrender. The people stood and listened to the exposition of God's word. There's a strong correlation between preaching God's word and confession of sin. Sin is a violation of God's holy law. So the preaching of that law is necessary to raise the consciousness of sin. We confess our sins because we see ourselves in the light of God's holy truth. That involves a mental redirection in our thinking. My friends, I'm not suggesting that we constantly air our dirty laundry for everyone to see. Certainly one aspect of confession is the acknowledgement of sin. But, quite frankly, sometimes we can become so caught up in confessing the sin that we forget to confess the Savior. The bulk of our confession should be focused on the Lord, not ourselves. It is not about us, but about Him. So we must learn to look inward, but we must also learn to look upward, verses 5 and 6. We learn to look upward in confession. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. We have a stunted view of confession if it is only inward. Such a view of confession ends up glorifying the sin, not the Savior. It leads to self-pity. 
We must not wallow in how bad we are for too long, or we will become spiritual cripples. The same Hebrew word for confession also means to express thanks and praise to God. The root of the Hebrew word means to throw, so we throw thanks to God when we confess him publicly. We need to look upward for biblical confession to take place. Many years ago, Ted Turner, the founder of TBN, Turner Broadcasting Network, declared that the Ten Commandments were irrelevant to modern man. He then suggested three commandments of his own to replace God's Ten Commandments. Sometime later, Ted Turner concluded an acceptance speech for a television award with the words, God bless you. Now, the two messages are incongruent with each other. What incredible arrogance to replace what God said with what you say, while at the same time presuming to speak God's blessing on other people. Ted Turner starts with man to understand God, but that is 180 degrees opposite what the Bible tells us. We do not start with man to understand God. We start with God to understand man. Worship is the foundation for service. Theology is the root of psychology. We can never understand ourselves until we come to an understanding of God, limited as we are in that understanding. We need to look upward if we are to properly look inward. The prayer of the Levites begins with God. This is said to be the longest formal prayer in the Bible. You will notice that it begins with worship. Verse 5 talks about God's glorious name. He is exalted above all blessing and praise. In other words, God is greater than anything we can ever say about him. We are not capable of doing justice to the greatness of God. He is more valuable than we can even fathom. Then, in verse 6, the Levites point to the central theme of all Judaism, the Shema, from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You alone are God. You alone are God. That's the confession of the Shema. Notice that the worship immediately moves into the subject of creation. God is worthy of our worship because he is the creator of all who worship him. You alone are God. The Levites were wiser than many theologians today. The theological world tends to get all caught up in competing views of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and misses the entire point of these vitally important chapters in our Bibles. There are all sorts of competing theories for understanding the origins of our universe. These theories should be examined honestly and openly, but we must not forget what the chapters are about. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 were not written as a scientific textbook on origins. They assumed the truth that God created this universe. These chapters were written to establish, as Carl Henry calls it, that God created by divine fiat. 
God called the world into existence. God is the originator. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 were written to establish the nature, power, and wonder of God. The entire Bible begins with the simple declarative sentence, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. Simple, clear, and absolutely relevant. God is the beginning point of the Bible because God is the beginning point of life. One writer said that he went to a wonderful concert where the great uh, pianist Van Cliburn was playing a Tchaikovsky's concerto with the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted by Eugene Ormandy at the time. In front of him at the concert sat a group of teenagers eating popcorn, oblivious to the beauty of the symphony. He wrote, That event has become a metaphor for me of how we live in God's universe with little wonder, little respect. We might as well live in a human-made garbage dump for all we appreciate the beauty and wonder God has surrounded us with. We scarcely seem able to distinguish between the Rocky Mountains and a Formica kitchen. My friends, beware. We as Christians can be so busy crunching popcorn that we become oblivious to the grandeur of the God we, we worship. Much of our worship today makes God imminent. We bring God down to our level, make him like us and a part of us. But in the process of emphasizing the imminence of God, we have lost the transcendence of God. We bring God down to our level but lose the awesome wonder of God who created the entire universe and is transcendent over it all. Though in confession we look inward and we look upward, but then we must look backward. Look backward in verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. The Israelites looked backward into their own history as an act of confession. They confessed God's grace and God's faithfulness to them in the past. And we too need to regularly look backward into the history of God's grace demonstrated in our lives if we are going to confess him before this world. History is his story. It is the account of how God worked in the past in order to strengthen us in the present as we face an uncertain future. Our faith is grounded in God's choice. Verse 7 says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. God's choice is an act of God's grace. 
Nehemiah 9.7 is the only place in the Old Testament after Genesis where we are told about how God changed Abram's name to Abraham. Abram means the father is exalted, and God changed it to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. It was a name change pregnant with promise, for his name was changed before the promise was fulfilled. Even before Isaac was born, God made a covenant, a promise, with Abraham. This look backward focuses attention on one of the most important passages in the Old Testament for understanding God's kingdom and salvation programs. It is called the Abrahamic Covenant and is found in Genesis chapters 12 and 15. The Abrahamic Covenant promises the nation of Israel a glorious future and a Messiah who would come one day. The Messiah would redeem the entire world from their sins. The Abrahamic Covenant is the foundational passage for understanding the kingdom of God and salvation history. Israel is a chosen nation. Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 8 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose them not because they were bigger, not because they were better than other people. God chose them solely because he loved them. Notice in Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8, that God is the subject of every action. The text says, You, God, chose Abraham. You, God, brought him out from Ur. You, God, gave him the name Abraham. You, God, made a covenant with him. You, God, fulfilled that promise to him. Even the first verse of the first phrase of verse 8 keeps the initiative with God, not Abraham. It was God who found Abraham's heart faithful. The verse does not say that Abraham was faithful, but that God found him faithful. Our faithfulness is grounded in God's choices. I would also point out that the passage clearly says that the Abrahamic covenant was a promise by God to Abraham to give him the entire land. The entire Middle East was God's gift to the Jew, even before the Jew existed, according to Genesis 15, verses 18 to 19. This was a unilateral covenant, not a bilateral covenant. That means that Abraham did not sign a contract with God. God alone signed the contract with Abraham, according to Genesis 15. The promise itself did not require Abraham's agreement. It was solely God's word of promise to Abraham, and God always keeps his word. Our faith is grounded in his choice. The Abrahamic covenant is also the great 
theological foundation for global missions. As one writer put it, in the Old Testament, the choice is always the action of God, of his grace, and always contains a mission for man. And only out of this mission can man comprehend the choice of God. God gave the Israelites a mission to stand out from the world as a light to the world. They were not to be assimilated into the other cultures because they were holy. They were God's chosen people. They had to be different so that the world would notice a difference and turn and believe in God. Instead, they often became like the cultures around them. And this is the problem Nehemiah faced in his day. They were so much like the other nations that they had lost their missional identity to those nations. Don't we face the same challenge in the church today? We too are a holy people. We too are chosen by God to be different. We should stand out as countercultural, calling a culture back to God and back to the truth of his word. Yet, we as Christians often become so like those around us that we lose our missional identity, just like the Israelites. My friends, no culture, no nation, no country, no political party should own us. We should be different because God called us out of this world to be holy. The salt loses its saltiness when we lose our missional identity. And the world sees no reason to, to take our faith seriously anymore. This is what happens when we do not ground our faith in God's choice. My friends, we are here at this time and in this place by divine appointment. We have a mission by divine commission. So confession is more than weeping over our sins. It is a total redirecting of our thinking about life. Our world life view is transformed by confession. It is a radical mind change about ourselves, about our God, our heritage, and our mission. Spiritual confession means mental redirection. We need to look inward, to look upward, and look backward in confession. There's an old Puritan prayer that I like very much. It pictures the constant attitude of confession that should dominate our thinking as Christians. Listen to the words of this old prayer. O God of grace, thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute, and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with the bridegroom's robe, and decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. 
I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it, and every evening return to it. Go out to the day's work in it, be married in it, be wound in death in it, enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Now that, my friends, is a great confession to pray every single day.